open in your Bibles tonight to uh, first, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter three. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand nice and high, and the ushers will speedily bring one to you so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study. It was Sir Isaac Newton that said, for every action, there is an equal or greater reaction. And he was speaking of laws of physics. But what I've discovered is that that same law also holds true as it pertains to end times teaching. That when you talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ and look at what the Bible says about it, And when you hear teaching on that subject, it has a very definite reaction in the minds, the hearts, and in the lives of those that that hear it. Now, those reactions are varying depending on the hearer, the person that is receiving the teaching or hearing those words. For some people, the teaching of end times theology stirs up the reaction of excitement The fact that we're living in historical times, potentially. The fact that history-making events are about to happen. World-shaping, world-changing things, supernatural intervention. And that's an excitement. And so some people are excited when they hear end times teaching. Other people are filled with fear and trepidation. The potential for instability and uncertainty and circumstantial uh, intensity, you know, it, it, it grips people in a way that it, it doesn't excite them as much as it makes them nervous to wonder what is going to happen, what, what kind of days are we living in. For some people, it stirs up hope to finally be redeemed from this present evil age, to finally see an end to the struggles that we're toiling under and burdened with. To finally see justice served and things set right and to see the Lord on the throne. And so they react with this overwhelming hope that rises up from within them. Some people react with an aimless energy. It's kind of like Christian catnip. It stirs them up, you know, but but without any real direction. They they kind of get excited, but their excitement isn't tempered with any kind of direction. And so they get all wound up, but they end up all spun out because, you know, the, 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 the energy had no aim. It had no direction. And for some people, the, the, end, the, the, you know, the topic of end times teaching or the second coming of Christ stirs up kind of a spiritual apathy or a spiritual laziness. It's kind of like a a twisted form of senioritis. Remember when you were in high school and it was your senior year and you could see the finish line and you would think to yourself, well, we're almost out of here, so we're not doing nothing, you know? And, and, And some people react to end times teaching with that kind of a response, It's kind of a, you know, withdrawal from reality. You know, hey, we're out of here soon, so it doesn't really matter what I do. And they kind of kick it onto autopilot, and they get kind of lazy. They give up their responsibilities, and they stop engaging in life, you know. And and, and they kind of put that on the back burner because they they have this this wrong-directed energy, you know, that Jesus is coming. Well, the Apostle Paul has given quite a bit of teaching to the Thessalonians on this topic of the second coming of Christ. His first letter was filled with information, doctrine relating to it. His second epistle, which we have looked at the first two chapters, is is hugely centered around this topic of end time stuff. And he's given them so much information, this young church. And now as we cross into chapter 3, into the final portion of Paul's correspondence with this church. He seeks to give to them a little bit of practical instruction that lends itself to personal direction. 
in light of the fact that we're living in these days. And I believe that this is more pertinent for you and I sitting here today than it was for them reading it in their day and probably for any other person at any other point in the history of the church. And so the question that we have after talking for several weeks now about the second coming of Christ and the days that we're living in and the chaos that we're watching happen around us in the world that all points us right back to Scripture is, what do we then do? What do we do with our lives in light of what we're seeing, in light of the days that we're living in? And what would Paul say to us? What did he say to them in this chapter? Basically, two simple things as Paul closes out his epistle that we see in chapter 3. And the first one is this, that we are to be busy about the Lord's business. The first thing as we realize the days that we're living in is that we're to be about the Lord's business. And he then segregates that theme into two individual topics or So he separates being about the Lord's business into two separate categories. And he begins by telling us that we should, as God's people in these days, join ourselves to God's work in this world. He begins in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Now, when a Christian, a child of God, hears the word prayer or pray, It immediately conjures up visions and concepts in in the mind. For some people, it's shrines and candles, ornate sanctuaries, pews that have padded kneelers, you know, and, 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 and maybe a time of day or a duty, something that is done, or a list, you know. And it can be broad, you know, just the things that, that come into our mind that define our concept of prayer. What, what is prayer? But the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that prayer is not an act. It's not a duty. It's not something that we separate time for in our schedule and and, and squeeze into a few minutes here and a few minutes there. It's not something that we do, but rather prayer in its perfect sense and what God intends it to be is a life of communion and fellowship in his presence. That it isn't something that starts and stops or that's separated into certain times or seasons, but it's a a living, breathing relationship, a walk with our Father. That that's what prayer is. That it's the ligament that attaches mortal, sinful man with an invisible and infinite God. And it's our life. It's where it comes. It's where our life comes from. It comes from God. Now, there's many that view prayer kind of like an ATM machine. You know, the almighty, tell them what you need machine. You know, and and just like with an ATM machine, you know, you go to the ATM when you have a need. When you open up your wallet or your pocketbook and you realize that, you know, hey, I'm getting low on cash and I need something, you go to the ATM and you get out more of what you need. And some people, that's what prayer is to them. It's it's taking my needs to God when they come. And so I list them, and at the proper time, I visit the almighty tell-him-what-I-need machine, and I, you know, lay my requests and petitions before him, and then I get on my way. Other people view prayer more rightly the way a tree views the soil that it's rooted in. Not something that I visit periodically when I have a need, but rather something that I ceaselessly and constantly need to be drawing from all the time. For a tree, their life is dependent upon if they're rooted in that soil. If at any time they become uprooted or separated from it, they immediately begin to die maybe even to the point where they cannot be replanted in that soil. We know that that's not true for the Christian. But it is true concerning the concept of prayer. Now, here's why this is important. Because if your concept of prayer is that of an ATM machine, that I take my needs to God, follow me here. If you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, or even if you just convinced yourself 
that Jesus was going to return within the next 30 days, your need list would virtually disappear, wouldn't it? I mean, if I knew for a fact that Jesus was coming in 30 days, almost everything that I pray for would, would, would just, all my needs would be gone. Well, you know, hey, I, I can miss the mortgage payment. It's not that big of a deal. I can, you know, I don't have to worry about paying that bill or, you know, being healed of this infirmity or seeing that circumstance changed because it's all going to be changed in a very short time. And my reaction would be that I would pray a lot less because I don't need God. He's coming. But if my concept of prayer is as it should be, as a tree that's rooted in the soil, then what I would realize is that my relationship with God now on earth is just a precursor to the eternal experience I'm going to have relating to him forever, and it will cause my prayer life to grow. And so the first thing that Paul says now that he's applying, now that he's giving instruction to them in light of the times that they're in, he tells them, pray. And he says, pray for us. And so we're to pray. And then he tells us what his, his requests are in ver- the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, pray for us. And he lists two things. He says, first of all, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. Now, we know what the word of the Lord is. It's the message of the gospel that Paul preached. For you and I, it includes the full counsel of God's word. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for rebuke, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or woman may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And so we know what the word of God is, and now he asks, and he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord would have free course and be glorified. The the, the words free course, what it means is that it would propagate rapidly. That it would spread, pardon the expression, like a weed. That nothing would restrict it from reaching and producing where it reaches, what it's intended to produce. And then he says also that it would be glorified. And the word glorified means that it would would rise, when it reaches where it reaches, that it would rise to its glorious rank. That's what the word literally means. That it wouldn't just spread, it wouldn't just be that Bibles make it onto the shelves of the citizens in Thessalonica or in Corinth where Paul was but that the word would also produce that which God intended the word to produce and that it would come to glorious rank, that it would bear the most possible fruit. I don't think there's any substance in the face of the planet or in the universe that's as powerful as God's word. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God spoke out of the darkness and physical matter appeared out of nothing. Now, we read that all the time. We hear that. We're familiar with that concept, and it almost bounces off of our ears. But think about the implications of the power of God's word. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the nation of Israel, and he said one of the most profound things. He said, as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may bring seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And then God says this, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And there is nothing that can restrain or restrict the power of God's word, whether it's spoken from his mouth directly or whether it's read in the Bible personally and intimately. Nothing is more powerful than the word of God. In the second chapter of Acts, when the apostle Peter preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the word, the Apostle Peter read, or literally he didn't read it, he quoted a segment of scripture from Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel, that takes all of two minutes to read. It was a two-minute sermon, just reading, speaking forth the word of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that that day, 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people were brought from death to life by the life-changing power of the word of God. In the following months, that number increased from 3,000 to 5,000 and then beyond. And what it is a picture of is what Paul is praying for, that the word of the Lord would have free course and be glorified, that it would come to its glorious rank. By Acts chapter 5, which is just a few months into this move of God upon his word there in Jerusalem, It says that Peter was taken and arrested in hopes that somehow the Jewish body there in Jerusalem could stop this thing from growing. And so they took Peter and they put him in prison, but an angel came by night and opened the prison door and told Peter, go out and preach. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees and the captain of the temple realized that Peter was out, The Bible says in Acts chapter 5, verse 24, it says that they doubted within themselves whereunto this thing would grow. They realized we can't stop it. And they were filled with defeat as they realized that they were trying in vain to restrict and restrain the power of God's word. And now the Apostle Paul is asking the Thessalonians to pray that where he is in Corinth and that where he goes from there as God uses this man, that the word of the Lord that he brings forth would have free course and be glorified. You and I possess the most powerful substance that exists, the logos, the word of God. And not only do we have the power of God's word, but we're also filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit. And when a person of God, filled with the Spirit of God, speaks forth the word of God, there is a powerful reaction that takes place. That's why we teach the Bible. And that's why if you're sharing with someone, give them the Bible. Give them the word. Because God said, it will accomplish that which I please. It will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. It's the power of the word. And so Paul asks them to pray. Pray that the word of God would have free course, that it would propagate rapidly, and that it would be glorified, that it would reach its exalted, glorious rank. And then he prays, he goes on and he says, and also pray that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. That that power that seeks to restrain the ministry that God has given to us, that it would not work. Pray that we'd be delivered from this opposition of Satan to try to restrict and restrain or to discourage and depress us that we wouldn't bring forth this life-changing word to those that need it. Now, the Bible teaches that when we pray for a ministry, whether it's a local ministry that we're a part of, a church ministry, or whether it's a missions organization, something going on overseas, or whether it's a political ministry or a campus ministry or any other type of ministry, that when we begin to pray for that ministry, the Bible says that we become uh, literally a, a, a partaker in producing the fruit of that ministry. We're actually helping in what that ministry is doing just simply by praying for it. And in that, we are then partaking in the fruitfulness of that ministry. We will also then be rewarded for, and we will be partakers of, the reward for that ministry in eternity. And that's, impo- that's important, you know, to think, to realize that just simply by praying, by interceding, by spending time before the Lord, holding up a ministry or a city or an area or a country or a work, That in heaven, we'll see people's faces. We'll look into their faces and they'll say, in some way, I'm here because you were praying. In some way, the orphanage that saved my life was built because you were praying. In some way, because of your prayer, someone on a campus had the boldness to share with me the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm here in heaven now because you prayed. And that's the kind of thing that in heaven will make our hands shudder when we realize that something that we viewed so lightly 
that's so insignificant made such a difference in someone else's eternity. And so in light of the fact that he's coming soon, don't disengage, engage, pray. Be a part of God's work in the world. Something else happens when you pray for ministries. It cultivates and develops the calling that God has for your own ministry. Every ministry that has borne fruit on the earth from the time of Pentecost until now has been birthed out of prayer. Every true vision for a ministry that has been fruitful and productive in God's kingdom came as a person or a group of people were just praying, waiting upon the Lord, and God begins to give vision. He begins to give ideas and motivation and give you a method in how to do things and how to bring it about. And in praying for other ministries, you begin to discover the thing that God has called you yourself to do. And so Paul encourages them. He says, pray for us, that the word would have free course and be glorified, that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And so Paul encourages us, join yourself. In light of the days that we're living in, join yourself to God's work in the world. But also then he goes on and he encourages us to join ourselves to his work, not just in the world, but listen carefully, join yourself to the work of God in your life personally. Look with me at verse 3. He says, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you or concerning you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now, In John chapter 14, that famous passage that Jesus spoke forth just before he went to the cross. He had his disciples gathered in the upper room. It was the last Passover. And he said to them, and you've all heard this before. He said, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe in me also. For in my father's house are many mansions and I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said that I am leaving, I am going, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, you know, I'm so glad for that. I talk to so many people, and and, and I myself have experienced this before. So many people that will come to me and say, you know, I'm just waiting to find my place. I just haven't found it yet. I feel like I've got the the special design, the special calling, this special destiny, but for some reason, purpose and time just haven't met right for me, and I'm just waiting for that, that perfect fit whether it's a job or a career path or whether it's a spouse or a place to live or a particular set of circumstances that someone's hoping will, that they'll achieve. Maybe they don't even know what it is. They just know that they haven't found the place where they fit yet. Can I tell you a secret? You never will. You never will. Because we weren't designed for this earth. And no matter how good your circumstances might be, even if you wrote them out yourself, on the other side of it, when you're in them, you'll realize that A, B, and C just isn't right. Something's not right. But when you get to heaven, when the Lord comes and he calls you home, and you go through the process of whatever it is, you know, immigration, when you get stamped in at the heavenly Ellis Island, and I don't think Peter works there, you know, but... But once you go through that and, and, and you know, we move in and, and we're into eternity, every single one of us, you know what we're going to say? Perfect. Perfect. This is exactly what I was waiting for. This is it. All of my existence, I, there was always something in me that thought this isn't right. You know, it, it'd be kind of like if you had, you ever seen, you know, those thousand piece puzzles? You know, and, and, and it's like this beautiful landscape, and it's like waves rolling and clouds and trees and hills and rock ledges. And there's one puzzle piece that has like a front end loader. 
<laughs> you know, and you're like, this, it's just, I just, I don't see how this, and that's us in this world. Here you have this world, and, it, and it's got this whole system that it works on, and all these rules, and this way, and all this stuff. And, and here we are, we're children of God, we're eternal beings. We've been called out of the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We've been given a hunger for something that this world could never satisfy, that it never gives. And we just don't belong here, we don't fit. That the, the psalm that I read at the beginning of the service when I first got up here after the worship, David said, how amiable are thy tabernacle. He says, the sparrow has found a house. The, the bird of the field, they belong here. You look at them and they just fit right in. But he says, oh, blessed are they that dwell in your house, O God. And how the soul of the Christian longs for the day when we'll be in his presence and our heart cry will be in that day, perfect. This is perfect, Lord. Thank you. This is what you made me for. I am form-fitted for what I am and where I am right here in your presence, in your kingdom. Now, it is true that Jesus is preparing a place for you. That is gospel. You could take it to the bank. He is preparing the perfect place for you. However, at the same time that Jesus is preparing a place for you, he, by his Holy Spirit is also preparing you for the place. And so there's two things that are going on at the same time. Jesus, the Son, is preparing a place for you, but God, the Holy Spirit, is working in you, preparing you for the place. From the moment you got saved, God began doing a work in your life. 24-7, 365, God began a work in your life. Removing the old man, crucifying the self-life. Removing sinful things and carnal practices and habits and everything that was of the old flesh nature. He begins this grand demolition process. He begins removing all the loose and unstable soil that that is useless in our lives. And, and, And he starts this process of just getting it out. And maybe you felt the pain of what it feels like to have a jackhammer at work in your heart, in your life, you know, as, as he does that work of just removing. And then he begins to dig and he starts going deeper and deeper, looking for solid ground, something somewhere that he can pour a foundation on. And then he begins to form out and pour the concrete in your soul and the foundation of Christ and eternal life and the word of God is poured in your soul and you sense it. He's doing something. He's building it and something's happening, but it's still underground. It's still unseen. There's something happening, but I don't know what it is. And, you know, you go through these long periods, these long seasons where you say, I don't feel God. I don't feel good. This process is painful. I'm in the dark. I don't see what he's doing. This doesn't make sense. Nothing's happening. Listen, he's working in your life. He's doing the work. He's digging. He's laying a foundation, something that's going to last, something that's going to be beautiful, ornamented, an expected end. He's laying conduit that he's going to pour his living water through in and through your life. But as of yet, it's dry because he's laying it down. He's putting it together. He's laying lines of electricity, not, you know, 10 wire, but lines wherein his spirit, lines of faith, teaching us how to hear his voice, how to cultivate a walk in the spirit, how to trust him and obey and go where he leads and do what he says and follow his will for our lives. And he's laying down those, those lines that for all of eternity we will use. You know, people think that in heaven we're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp. Listen, for me, that's just not perfect. Sorry, you know. But that's not heaven at all. You're talking age-abiding life. For the next trillion years, you're going to hear God's voice. For the next trillion years, the work that he's producing in your life right now is going to come back around and serve you for all of eternity. It's going to make a difference. How? I don't know. But what he's doing in our lives right now is that he's preparing us for the place. His work within our lives is that he's preparing us for the place that he has designed for us. You say, well, why doesn't he just speak it into finality? Right? I mean, hey, if he could speak matter into existence, why can't he just speak completion into my situation, into my life? Here's why. Because if he did that, 
we would all have renter's mentality. Now, if you've ever rented a house or if you've ever had someone rent from you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We rented for, you know, forever, for the, for the longest time. You know, uh, we had three kids before we had our own place, and so we were always renting. And I remember the landlord, he came down and he, you know, he put this big fat bead of caulk where the bathtub met the, the floor in our bathroom, you know, this big fat thing. And here I'm sitting like, oh, would you just hurry up? I mean, I got the three kids, you know, and the whole thing. And he finishes and yeah, it's fine. But, but after a couple days, it started to peel away back from the tub. And so I just, you know, saw the thing there. And I'm like, this ain't doing nothing. So I just grab one side of it. And I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And I just rip the whole thing out. And I'm like, this is cool. You know, you got this big rubber, you know, thing. You know, and, and I never told him about it, you know. So, you know, a couple of weeks or something goes by. And he, he's down there. He lived upstairs, you know. And he, and he comes down. And he's like, what, what, where's the? And I said, oh, it, it wasn't doing nothing. I just ripped it out. And he looks at me. He's like, well, water's going to get under there. He's like, water destroys things. You don't understand. I'm like, What's the big deal? You know, it's water. You know, God, the whole world is made of water. It's just water, you know. I didn't say that. I was just thinking it. <laughs> so he gets his thing, and he starts caulking again. I'm like, man, this guy needs to, you know, get a spiritual life, you know. I was a renter. Renter's mentality, see. Then I bought a house. <clears throat> I had to renovate myself. So, you know, I go into the bathroom, and... I don't have time to describe to you what it looked like, but it would make you throw up, you know. And I brought it down to the studs, and it was literally a scene out of the money pit. Because they had this tub surround, you know, that they had basically cut a window out of because there was a window in the shower, and they didn't caulk around the tub surround, you know. And so for years, I don't know how many years, water, every time the shower ran, got behind the tub surround and under the tub and into the floor. Well, guess what? I fell into the garage from the bathroom through the floor because the floor was rotted because of the water, you know. I didn't fall, you know, I didn't fall to the garage floor, but my leg went all the way through. And I'm like, oh, goodness, you know, I learned something about water. You know, you got to keep it out. See, now that I own, let me tell you the thing that drives me the most crazy in my house is that my kids, they go, it's one of my kids in particular, goes into the bathroom, washes their hands not giving away the gender, you know. And, and washes the hands and then finishes washing hands and then does this. Hands out to the side. Right onto the floor. You know, shakes the hand. And I go, I'm like, don't, please, please use the towel. Water destroys things. And you know what they do? They look at me like, would you get a spiritual life, Dad? <laughs> it's just water. See, there's a difference between a renter's mentality and an owner's mentality. And here's the point when it comes to things spiritual and the work that God is doing in your life. If God were to just speak you into completion and into perfection, you would gain nothing in terms of wisdom, insight, and understanding into who he is and what his ways are. But the toil that we go through, the labor, the pain that we feel, the stress that we're under while we're feeling the jackhammering of his spirit within our heart, works in us this weight of glory and this understanding of his ways that will go with us for all of eternity. It's priceless. And so he toils. He works in us. He digs out the old. He lays the foundation. Years can go by before any visible, ornamental, beautiful thing can happen. But it's worth it. And what Paul is saying to us here, he's saying, Give yourself, join yourself fully to the work that God is producing in your life. Why? And here's what he tells us. He tells us these are the things that God is doing. He tells us there that God is faithful. Verse 3, he says that he is faithful. Now, what does that mean? It means that he is not going to quit his work within your life, even though he might be coming soon. Yes, Jesus is coming soon. I'm, praise the Lord. I know he's coming soon. But just because he's coming soon doesn't mean he's going to stop doing the work that he's begun in your life. He's still going to do it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
That is that he is not going to stop wrestling with us, working in us, building us, doing that thing that he wants to do in us. He's not going to stop doing it until the day that he comes. And therefore, we should not stop giving ourselves to that work that he's doing in our lives either. Spiritual apathy of just saying, well, he's coming soon, so I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to serve. I don't need to prepare my way before him. I don't need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior. I don't need to do these things because he's coming soon. No. See, the Lord is faithful. He's going to finish his work, so don't you give up on what he's doing in your life either. He's faithful. And then he says that he will, and this is his work. He's telling us what God is doing in your life right now while we're waiting for him to come, is that he will also establish you. He is faithful and he will establish you. The word establish in the Greek means to make stable, to firmly set, to strengthen, to turn resolutely in a direction and to confirm. The one word establish is a, a single word definition of Jeremiah 29.11, which says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing in your life. He knows what he's trying to bring forth. He knows what the finished product is going to look like. And it's a good thing. It's an expected end. It's a good place. And Paul defines that place as established, firm, settled, strengthened, resolute, firm. That that's what God's doing in your life. He's establishing you. And then the third thing he says, and that he will keep you from evil. He says uh, there at the end of verse 3 that his work in your life is that he will also protect you and keep you from evil. And that's so comforting to me. I mean, we've, we've lived in this country, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot younger than many of you, and some of you have seen darker times uh, in our country than I have seen. And, and what we're heading into right now and are in are some dark times. And, you know, things happen in dark times when people don't have work and when they, they can't, you know, provide food for their families or when there is more crime than there is in authority to you know, inhibit crime, and you have this recipe where all of a sudden things become very unsettled, you know. And we see that happening around us, and you can almost get fearful sometimes. It's like, what should I do? Is How can I protect myself? Do I have to worry about someone breaking into my house, you know, or, 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 or hurting and harming in some way my family? How do I protect myself? In fact, just Sunday night, I was watching the, the, the Sunday night football game with my son Rocky. And my phone rang. It was my next door neighbor. And, uh, you know, he, we, we both kind of live in the woods, you know, and his driveway is about a quarter of a mile long. And it kind of, it it, you know, it follows this narrow passage down through the woods and then it curves around to his house. And, and he called me and he said, hey, were you just in my driveway? And I said, no, you know, creep alert, you know, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't in your driveway, you know. Um, I'm watching football with my son. He says, well, you know, I have my driveway alarm went off. He's got one of those things where, you, you know, when you cross a certain point, it beeps in the house to let someone know that you're coming. He, he says that my driveway alarm went off. He said my wife opened up the front door. She went out on the porch, and there was a man standing in my driveway. I said, are you sure? He goes, absolutely. He was close to the house, and he didn't even flinch. He didn't even move when she was there. And, you know, she came in, and she called the cops. Now, you know, in a, in a neighborhood where the houses are right on top of each other or whatever, in this situation, that was weird. You cannot wander mistakenly to the point where he, you know, saw. So, so here I am inside and, and everything, you know, all the man blood came out, you know. And I go, well, I'll go outside right now, you know, and I, and I get off the phone and I go and I grab my son's, you know, Louisville slugger. And I go outside, you know, and, and, and so I come out in the pitch black of the, of the night. Thankfully, the moon was pretty full, and so there was, you know, that little glimmer. And I went up there, and I stood next to my driveway, and I just listened. And I'm like, who thinks they're going to come on my property? And then reality gripped me. And I thought, what if he has a gun? <laughs> Here I am, commando with my Louisville slugger. I'm not Jackie Chan. I wouldn't even know if, if I could hit someone with a bat, you know, if, if, if the situation happened. And all of a sudden, like, all the hair on my body stood up, and I just felt the Lord subtly just speak to my heart and just go back in the house. 
<laughs> so I did. You know, the, all the man blood went back, you know, to wherever it goes. And, and I went back in the house, you know. And it, it turned out, you know, I don't know what happened if the whatever never, never came up again. And, and I didn't let it bother me. But, but you start thinking about these things. Well, should I have a gun? Well, should I have many guns? <laughs> you know, <laughs> should I have an assault rifle? You know, you start, and you start, can start going off on these things. And, and you know, you, know, you, 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 you want to be in fellowship with the Lord. You, so it's, you take these things to the Lord and you say, well, Lord, what, these are weird times. You know, what do we do? And so, I'm so thankful for the word of God that he speaks to my heart. Because he, he says, he says, I will go before you and I will be your rear guard. I got your back. The Bible says, he that keepeth you will neither slumber nor sleep. See, the problem with any of us, you can have a weapons cachet that, you know, would would make the army look bad. But at some point, you have to go to sleep. But the Lord doesn't. He that keepeth you will neither slumber nor sleep. And here Paul is saying, the Lord is faithful. He's going to establish you, and he will protect you. It's part of his work, what he's going to do in your life. It is appointed to a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And everything that happens in your life and mine as children of God between now and the second coming of Christ is father-filtered. He knows the plans that he has for us. And so, Paul talks about the work that he has. Be busy about his business concerning his work in the world, the ministries that you're involved in, the things that you pray for, his motives and agendas, and be busy about the work that he's doing in your life. Don't quit. Don't become apathetic. That's number one. Number two, the second thing that Paul says to them, in light of the fact of the days that we're living in, he says this. He says, be busy also about your own business. Be busy about your own business. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the time span that would exist between his departure and his second coming, he said that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a householder that delivered his goods unto his servants and then went on a long journey. And unto the one, it says that he gave him 10 pounds. It's a unit of money. It's a stewardship. He gave him something. And then he said these words. He said, Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. It means to keep yourself busy. Don't sit around. Don't just wait for something to happen, but use the talents, use the time, use the resources that you have at your disposal and make something of it. Don't waste your time waiting for the Lord to come. Occupy with your time. Now, it's apparent in the text that there were some people in the church in Thessalonica that were not working at all, whether it was because they were lazy or whether it was because they were saying, hey, the Lord's coming. We don't really have to worry about any of those practical things. That's just carnal. That's for carnal people, spiritual people. We don't have to worry about it. God's going to come. He's going to take care of us. It wasn't because of a recession. It wasn't because of injury. It wasn't for any other practical reason. It was just simply that they weren't working. They weren't providing for themselves. And so Paul now begins to address this issue that was going on here in verse 6. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Now, this word disorderly is the same word that Paul used back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, when he said that warn them that are unruly. And the word we we talked at that time, it doesn't mean someone who's a rebel or someone who doesn't follow the rules, but the word in the Greek literally means someone who is unarranged, disorganized, without structure, aimless, and without intent or purpose. And it's speaking about the person who is just lazy. They've got no structure in their life at all. They haven't gone to bed at the same time 
ever in their life. They, they stay up all night, they, then, then they sleep all day. They've got no purpose. There's no intent. There's no goal. There's no drive. There's nothing there. They're, they're just a lazy person. And, and oftentimes they'll shroud their laziness under the guise of spirituality in some way. And what Paul is saying is that's an ungodly lifestyle. That's an ungodly way to live. That our God is a God of order. Everything he does is with intent and with purpose. It's structured. There's a reason for it. And therefore, as those that are created in his image, our lives should be structured and have order. That there should be a purpose and an aim behind what we do as children of God. That that's Christ-like in that kind of thing. He goes on to define it further in verse 8. He says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought, you know, worked with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power. He's saying we had the privilege. We have the privilege as ministers to live off the gospel. We have the ability to refrain from physical labor because of what God has called us unto. It's not because we didn't have the power but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Now, he defines what the word means here by giving that description. He says that they're disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. There's no structure, there's no purpose, intent, or aim, or drive. They just exist, they're taking up space. And he says that they shouldn't even eat. He says, now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And so he tells them that they should work. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago. And at that time in 1 Thessalonians 5, at the end there, when we are going through those verses, you know, I shared with you how our society, American society, has become a breeding ground for this type of person. Our country has just become an enabling society for someone who just doesn't want to work, that they just want to be a busybody, they, they want to take up space, they, they don't want to worry about eating their own bread, they, they get their bread from the government, or they get their bread from somewhere else, someone else, you know, and, and, and we've just kind of become this enablement society for this type of thing. And Paul had written to them and he said, warn them, warn people that have that mentality, and this was the warning is that you're wasting your life. Don't waste your life. You've been created. I've been created in the image of God. And the the, the potential that we have as those that have been made in his image is absolutely limitless. The story is told of, of George Washington Carver, that famous historian, you know, mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, you know, it spent time in slavery. He was a black man, but he was a believer in the Lord Jesus, and he loved the Lord and worshiped in sincerity and truth. And at one point in his life, he prayed to God in a time where he was just worshiping, fellowshipping with the Lord, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said these words. As a scientist, intrigued by science, he said, Lord, show me, reveal to me the secrets of the universe. And then immediately, he says, that a spirit of conviction came over him as he prayed those words. This overwhelming sense of unworthiness. Who am I to ask God to reveal to me the secrets of the universe? Puny, sinful man, who am I? And then he realized what he had done, and he laughed, and he said, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy that you should show me the secrets of the universe. Lord, show me the secrets of the peanut. That's all I'm worthy of. Well, God answered that prayer. And George Washington Carver is credited with the discovery of peanut butter. Not only peanut butter, but over 300 uses for the peanut. Including leather dyes, house stains, antibacterial soaps. You know, I mean, you can Google that and read the list of things that he discovered that the peanut would do. And here's my point. Here's the point. That as a child of God, you know God. 
You have the living God in your corner. You have the living God living inside of you. And there's no reason that you don't come to your fullest potential in all that he can do in your life here on this earth. And it requires but one thing of you is that you're diligent. That's it. Be diligent. You know, I think of young Joseph. He was diligent. He was industrious. He knew God. He was put in a position where he would become one day the heir of Jacob's shepherding business. He was given the coat of many colors, but he experienced a setback. He was sold by his jealous brothers into slavery, but he was diligent. He was industrious. And so as a slave, he was promoted to become manager over all of Potiphar's house. Then he had a setback. He was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife and he was thrown into a prison in Egypt, a big setback. But he was diligent and industrious and God was with him. And he became the captain of that prison, overseeing all of it so much so that the captain of the guard had no idea what was going on. Joseph was number one. And then he had a promotion. And he was made to be the prime minister over all of the land of Egypt, the most powerful kingdom of the world in that time. And what he discovered and what you and I recognize as we see his life is that all of those supposed setbacks, that time when he was a slave, oh, I'm a slave in this job. This guy's a slave driver. That was giving him a skill set that he would need when he reached his destiny. The time that he spent in the prison, oh, I'm in prison in this job. I feel like this job is just such a prison. The time that he spent in prison, it wasn't a setback. It was actually training, giving him skill sets that he would need when he would be prime minister coming into the place of God's plan. At any time, Joseph, a man with the wisdom that he had, the Bible says that he taught Pharaoh's senators wisdom. He could have escaped and gone back to his father's house. He could have done that, but he didn't. Because he knew he was in God's will. It was part of God's plan. And ultimately, he became the savior of the known world in his day because God was with him. And he was diligent. And he did things industriously. We read of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says that he was industrious. He didn't even know it, but King Solomon, the most powerful king in the world, was watching one day. And he saw the industrious nature of this man, Jeroboam. Solomon took note and immediately made him governor over one-sixth of Israel. He went on to become the first king of the ten divided tribes. Why? Because he was industrious and he didn't know who was watching him at a particular time. And it led him to a place of greatness. There isn't one time in the Bible that you see the call of God placed upon someone's life where it doesn't also mention what they were doing to occupy diligently. Whether it was Moses keeping the flock, whether it was Amos keeping the sheep and following after, whether it was Elisha who was driving you know, the plow with the yokes of oxen, 12 yokes of oxen, hard work. Whether it was Peter and John toiling with the nets. Whether it was Matthew at the receipt of custom. No matter who it was at any time, we always know God likes diligence. Be diligent. And here's the good news. You can't fail. You cannot fail because he is in your corner. He's going to work it out. Now, if you're a mom, you are working. You have a full-time job, and it's huge what you're doing. If you're a man, work. Get organized. Do something. Let God begin to work. Let God move in your life in that way. It's what he wants to do. Well, he moves on now. He closes out the epistle in verse 13. He says, but you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Let there be a natural shame that comes upon someone who is not walking in the ways of God. Let them know it. But, he says in verse 15, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't be silent about it. Don't let sloppy agape govern your decisions and the way you deal with people, but be honest, be truthful in love. And then he says in his benediction, verse 16, he says, now the Lord of peace. Isn't that amazing? Let those words sink in. The Lord of peace. Peace comes from God. Whether it's in your heart, your mind, or your soul, whether it's in your family or your neighborhood, 
or in the political spectrum or in the world or in Israel or anywhere else. He's the Lord of peace. Peace doesn't come from a doctor or from a medication or from a meditation or from a yoga class or from an experience or for a drug or from a drink. He is the Lord of peace. The Bible says that he will restore your soul and lead you in paths of mercy and righteousness for his name's sake. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always. By all means, the Lord be with you all. The salutation with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As we close, I talk to a lot of people, especially in the the past few weeks as we're seeing things happen in the world at such a rapid rate and people are taking account spiritually. I talk to a lot of people that say, it just seems that what I'm doing with my life is so insignificant in light of eternity, in light of God's kingdom and God's ways. I mean, building houses just seems so futile. Writing loans, just, I mean, what eternal good is there in that? Or answering phone calls day after day after day after day. Or sweeping floors or cleaning houses or whatever it is. It it just seems like I, I would be doing so much more for God's kingdom if I was on the mission field. Or if I was evangelizing regularly or teaching Bible studies or writing books or publishing poetry or doing something, performing music or leading worship services. It just seems like if I could just be doing that, I could be so much more productive in the things of God. Listen carefully, Christian. With God, in the Christian life, it's not the product that you produce that God is interested in. It's his presence with you in what you're doing. That's what God's concerned with. It's not what you're doing or the position you have, but it's his presence with you in the position that you currently are occupying. That's the issue at hand. He's not interested in the product of, you know, seeing great crusades and performing works of ministry. But what he is concerned with is, Are you fellowshipping with him, experiencing his presence, and growing in your relationship with him in the place that you are at right now? Because your satisfaction and mine, the level of our depth and the level of peace, if you would put it that way, is not found in the position that we have, but rather it's in his presence with us where we are. That's where life is found. And here's the secret. The secret is this is that the Lord's presence in your life is where he has you right now. That's where the Lord's presence is within your life. I think of Jacob. He was a fugitive. He was exiled. He was running from his brother. He had scandalized the family. He was possessionless. He was homeless. He was laying out under the stars using a rock for his pillow. And I'm certain in his mind, he was thinking to himself, I can't wait until this is over. And that night he had a dream. And he saw a ladder and angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder. And when he woke up in the morning and he realized where he was and what he had seen, he said these profound and true words. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. I believe that the source of discontentment in many Christian lives is not because they're out of the will of God, but rather it's because they fail to recognize the presence of God in the place that they're at. Or fail to embrace the fact that it's God's will where you are. And so there's a discontentment that stirs within the soul. Listen, God is into washing dishes. He'll meet with you there at the shrine of your sink. God is in an endless pile. You think I'm joking, but he is. He's in those things. He'll meet with you there. He'll show you his presence. He's into sweeping a dirty floor for the thousandth time. God will show you the secrets of the universe while you're sweeping a dirty floor. 
I can bear witness to that in my own life. He's with you. And what he's concerned about is not getting you to a place that is yet future. It's walking with you in the place that you're at now. That's what he wants. And the question is, are you experiencing it? Do you know the presence of God in the circumstances of your life right now? Because that's where life is. That's where peace is. That's where power is. That's where fruit comes from. He will lead you on. Nothing's forever. Read the Bible. But do you know him? And so Paul, in his closing exhortation to the Thessalonians, in light of the days that we're living in, he says, be busy about the Lord's business. And be busy about your own business. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God, for the timeless testimony of truth that you give to us. The fact that you lead us so faithfully and that you will complete the work that you began. And so each one of us sitting here tonight in days like this, looking at a world that's facing precarious situations, unstable circumstances, many of us looking at our own lives and wondering how are things going to look in five years should you tarry, five months, we pray tonight that the Lord of peace would fill us with peace. We ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us that we might shine brightly all the way to the end. That though we see the finish line hazily appearing there in the distance, that it wouldn't cause an apathy to come over us, but that we'd be stirred and energized and that we'd finish this race well. And so I pray for each person here tonight, Father, that you would fill us with your Spirit that you would empower us to be the sons and daughters of the living God. And that we might know your victory in our lives and we pray with one voice, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.